Thank you, Pastor Jeff. So the book, um, Instruments book is what we call it in uh, the professional world of counseling, if you would. And uh, it, it is sort of a, the bigger picture of practical theology in more depth, if you want, if you want to think about it that way. Um, and I don't know if anybody's had any particular impact or been impacted by this in any way. Think in terms of the 13 messages or lessons that we were, taught, were teaching, or think in terms of your, your reading. Um, anybody have any quick testimony on something that impacted you with the book? Put you on the spot. No pressure. I think it's neat how the, um, the larger vision of the book is that the body of, of Christ would be carrying forth the, the, um, the work of, of the gospel, and, and not just the gospel, but you know, interacting with one another and yeah. pressing one another to, to good works and, and sanctification and areas like that. So it's, good. it's a move away from professional ministry model and a more, I think, intestine model. Yeah. So I was really, I was really challenged by that. Good. Good. And, and let me follow up with that is that, you know, the professional model is that it's secret, confidential and secret and uh, independent, individualized, if you will. And that you, you go around your church, you go around your friends, or your family, and you sort of in a cover, in the cover of darkness, um, you cover your identity and you're, you try to get help individually with a professional who's trained to interpret your pain. That's the alternative. Our, the biblical model of this is that the church helps you walk through this change process. In fact, if you think about 2 Corinthians 10, uh, 4, it says the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. That would be the NIV version of that. But the weapons of the church are one of the weapons that we have. So the good ecclesiology, good understanding of the church it incorporates that part of your life. You're not it's just not a club that we belong to, but God is using the church to impact change in each one of our life. And he really does a good job at showing you how you have a responsibility, if you're a Christian in the church, to be part of that process, to be receiving that and to giving that. So thanks for bringing it up. Good. Anybody else? Yes. So now we have one person we can love from California. Okay, thank you, Lord. I, I was wondering about that. Yeah. Lord, is there anybody in California that we could love? Now we have our own kitty. Yeah. 
No, that's exactly right. We're we're that's the hard part. I think you really kind of hit the nerve there. That's the, the most difficult part of this process is being open to be able to come to see this. I'm struggling with this depression. I'm struggling with this anxiety. I'm, instead of trying to look at it, trying to protect our our image as Christians, you know, or having the fear of man and walking through that, just just opening ourselves up, saying, "I need help," you know, and because everybody who's helping you needs help. So it just kind of goes on and on. So I realize that the impact will be either that <clears throat> some of the things we may teach you, uh, you're reading, if you read the book, and this is like the third time, but if you study the book, like it's third time for me, but if you study the book, then all of a sudden it makes a deeper impact for change. You start thinking about the process uh, in a real practical way. So what's talking about change, notice it says, instilling identity with Christ. I have one thing about identity I want to talk about that's outside the scope of the book a little bit. And the other one is providing accountability. Now, if you talk about something that's antithetical to counseling in general, uh, that would be it. There, you Rarely will you find in the professional world them holding you accountable for the, the counseling you come in. It's usually a talk therapy sort of uh, process where they just want you to think it through and and the Rosarian sort of thing, the answers come from within you or um, or they keep the blame on the outside. And, and so, therefore, they're not really going to hold you accountable for change. They may ask you questions, but there's not going to be accountability that uh, Tripp talks about in the book. So the question would be uh, one more little interaction part, and then I've got a couple things to summarize. Uh, we only have 45 minutes. <laughs> Just kidding. It's always a deficit, isn't it? Uh, so here's the thing is, what would you specifically describe, or how would you specifically describe the process of change? Now, this is all the book has been, 14 chapters, plus all the appendix, there are amazing stuff in there. Um, what, what do you think the process of change includes? Well, don't everybody speak? I mean, this is like, there's so many hands up, I don't know where to... Oh. Well, probably the first thing is admitting that you have to change. Good. Good. Yep. Absolutely. You have to at least own the problem, right? In the world we live in, who's usually the problem? Or where is the problem? In the world we live in, it's usually outside of us. I remember um, Cindy and I had some conversation. She'll be teaching some of the young uh, teenagers, and we just had this little conversation about anxiety, and I said, First thing you need to understand is anxiety is not something happening to you. It's happening something in you. It's happening in you, not to you. And then you can get to the real issues of anxiety. So anyway, um, since there's no real describing to that, let me just just talk about this. And we're summarizing this, and I have just a little uh, small part of the PowerPoint because I knew we wouldn't have much time today. Uh, But I would suggest that you at least take a closer look at the book. I used it in the seminary uh, years ago, and the students cried about it because it's real intensive, but it was really helpful if you're going to help disciple people or counsel. Now, um, he talks about this. It's fueled by identity. Now, this is where the part that comes in it says instilling identity in Christ, and the New Testament really describes Christians as being in Christ. It's an interesting statement, in Christ. Um, and that's where all the promises are. If we looked at all the scriptures, like especially 
Second Peter 1, where he's talking about you, that God has given you everything you need for life and godliness. And then it goes on to describing this whole thing for those who, who are trusting him, those who are believing his promises. That it's beautiful. We're going to look up two scriptures here in just a minute because we'll have time for that. But remember that Christians, um, they need a, to be engaged in the change process. And Tripp's thing is that it, really if they once they know that they're, they understand the scope of them being in Christ, what does that really mean uh, in real practical terms? He said it's really a good motivator, and it really is. It's not a magic trick, and we'll talk more about that in a second. But all of a sudden they start living out their identity, and that starts the change process. You have to understand that if you're going to help someone, especially if you're raising children, you get to teenage years, let's say they live to teenage years. Then you finally start. Uh, then you start helping them, sort of understand that transition to real adulthood by helping them understand that their biggest problems on the inside. Mark seven talks about that. That everything that defiles man comes from within. And so, so we're always looking for the boogeyman. It's always it's, you know there's a uh, flip Wilson approach to this that the devil made me do it or it's my boss or my kids or my job or whatever it is but it's really the, our biggest problem is self-inflicted by ourself and the change process he talks about this understanding who you are in Christ the resources you do have he very eloquently lays this out in chapter 14 he says a union with Christ takes us back to the heart of the issue so what's cool about this is if you have a behavioral issue that you're trying to change it's always connected to a heart issue motives drive behavior you have to remember that you're always going to be frustrated in the change process if you're always scraping the outside of something. But if you're digging deeper to the heart issue, what's driving this? What is it that I really want? Then you may find an idol of the heart. You may find something that you're obsessed by uh, that requires your sacrifice for. And that's where the repentance really needs to happen. And then the domino effect, you know, once that repentance happens and that you're, you're really starting to get to the real issue of the motive, then your behavior starts changing. That's what's neat about it. And let me give you a little uh, advertisement. We get that all the time. Don't you get in a good movie and just get started as an advertisement? On uh, January the 17th and 18th, I start my first biblical counseling class uh, for, the, for 2020. So you're invited to register for that. It's a Friday night and, and most six hours on Saturday. We'd love for you to come. You'll learn more about motives and behaviors. Okay. Um, so, he said, we're, when we're in Christ, that's the most important truth about us that we need to, to grasp in the change process. Now, you can maybe say that intellectually, but remember this. Christians typically go to and you grasp information, looking for information to do transformation alone. And it's, uh, it's simply not true. So, to be informed, as so we have marriage problems, what we do, we go to more marriage retreats, more marriage retreats, more seminars, read more books. But there has to be a place where the church is helping you place the interaction or the accountability part of this change process. That's what's so important about biblical uh, soul care, if you would. That's what we have to do. So don't be, don't be intimidated for coming to help, looking for help and saying, listen, I need help with this. We're all looking for help, believe me. We spent 14 months in counseling because of Cindy's problems. <laughs> I shouldn't have said that. I'm sorry. Cindy. Well, Dan made me say that. Dan made me do that. I, I just wasn't my fault. 
No, we did. We, it was intense, too. I mean, it was, it was high accountability. It was very intense. But it, it's just scratched the surface, basically, if you want to know the truth. So let's take a quick let's take a quick gander at identity scriptures. Just open your Bibles to, to Romans six, and so this side will do Romans six. This side will do First John three. So you'll be able to follow along. Romans six, fifteen through seventeen. Romans six fifteen through seventeen. Over here would be 1 John 3, 1 through 3. Who would like to read Romans 6, 15 through 17 on this, my left side? Anybody? Any volunteers? Wow, this side needs help. Okay, I expect them to come forward and say, really need help. No, I'm just kidding. Do that for me, brother. Go. Go for it. What then shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? God forbid. Know ye not that to whom you yield yourselves servants who obey as servants, you are you are to him uh, I'm sorry, you are to him whom you obey, whether of sin, of death, or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that we are servants of sin. But you have obeyed from the, the heart that from that form of doctrine which was you. Okay, King James, we appreciate that, King James. We appreciate Glenn, and we appreciate King James a lot. Is there another version that we could uh, glean from? Anybody else? Anybody? That's fine. Good. Thank you. No, no. And and both those are good, you know, word for word, accurate translations. But listen, here's what you need to know about this identity. You're a slave to whoever you, you're a master, whoever your master is. Here's what happens in our identity. We sometimes and usually, I'll say usually, are more likely to identify ourselves with our problems rather than with Christ. Try to remember that. It's, it's, a, it's kind of an inside tip on change. You identify you're not a person suffering from fill in the blank. You're not this, you know, I am a, I, am, I have depression or I am a bipolar. I am a, those are identifying with those problems, but we are a, a Christian such struggling with. You see the difference? Um, or a follower of Christ struggling with this or that is much better, but but yeah, we're a slave, not only in our thinking, but we're a slave in how we're, we're functioning um, to whoever who is our master. And so that, so we keep, it's called problem-centered sort of counseling where people keep the problem there, or at least when we talk about our suffering, it become, we become um, sort of obsessed with the problem and it starts becoming, identifies us as a person. And so you're a person struggling with depression. You're not a depressed person. Really, honestly. Who's got uh, 1 John 3, 1 through 3? Thank you, Mark. Um, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, 
that we would be called children of God. Such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, he will be like him. We, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. That's beautiful. Another version so we can hear this correctly. Okay, anybody else? That was what, ESV? NASB. NASB. So we had a NASB and somebody else? what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Amen. Now try to remember that just as a disclaimer Biblical counseling, biblical soul care does not work on the unbeliever. Biblical soul care does not work on the unbeliever. We know this from 1 Corinthians 2.14, that the natural man knows nothing of the Spirit. He's not going to submit to the Spirit. So it's not going to be good for me to use all my Bible techniques and all the scriptures i memorize on people who are dead spiritually. They're not going to be able to discern that. It's not going to bring conviction. So they're, a, they're candidates for what? Do what? Evangelism. Yeah. You're going to evangelize. It's going to be the gospel. And so that should motivate your change. Now, let me just remind you this, that the vast majority of people that we'll contact, sort of our First Timothy 3 people, there's a form of godliness denying his power. I'm not saying everyone, but I'm just saying be careful that we, if you ask Obama, he would say he's a Christian. There's a lot of people who call themselves Christian that, that will not benefit by the identity of Christianity. That makes sense. Here's what I here's what I wrote based on the scripture. Identity is not a technique, but a reality if it has power in the change process. If it has power because of who you really are in the change process. So it's not a technique. If I can just get you to believe that you're a Christian stronger, um, then I can see more fruit in your life. That's not true. Only the presence of the Holy Spirit being born again John, the third chapter, being born again, providing the power source of all of our life, which is the Holy Spirit in us, being in unity with our union with Jesus Christ. I mean, as a, as a believer, called to God, part of the elect, part of the church, part of the saved, has the power to change under the, under the scripture, under the authority of the scripture. Just remember this. So not everyone who says they're a Christian probably is a Christian. We don't know that. So... Identity can't be a technique. It sort of is in professional counseling. I hate to keep throwing them under the bus, but that's what we sort of, that's the toxins that we breathe uh, as Christians in the world today. We have sort of a, we've been uh, exposed or uh, infiltrated, our, our thinking has been infiltrated by professionalism and counseling that has a different philosophy. Remember in Colossians 2 it says, not to be taken captive by these traditions of men, philosophies of the world. And so we have to be very careful by that. So let me just make a point on, on doctrine of uh, identity in Christ. It's much, much different than using identity as a motivational technique. Come on, you're just a Christian. You can do this, you know. Um, it's, it's it. It's not, not the way it works. If you go to First Peter or Second Peter 2, 1, again, and go back to that 3 through 5 passage where he's talking about 
God has given us everything for life and godliness. You're going to read that whole passage all the way down to 11 or so, and you're going to find out that that you have to be a person who's putting their faith and trust in that. That has to be your resource. That has to be your um, that has to be your your journey of faith. Um, so it's not it's not a motivational technique. It's understanding to me to the reality of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and life changing truth of God's word as a genuine Christian. So the worldly use of identity and counseling sometimes motivates someone in crisis by esteeming the patient into self-worth, self-respect, and self-love as a tool uh, while they're coping in a crisis. Now, it's nice. It's, 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 it feels good. It's like eating whipped cream when you're hungry. It's not going to last long. But it's a technique of trying to help person understand identity. But it's not the true. We want them to really glean from the gospel that has been given to them, the gospel, the living gospel. That's you live out every day. It's important. Very important. So identity in Christ is redirecting a person uh, away from the hopeless emotionalism towards a trusting work of God in their life. I hope you can see that. The world uses identity as a psychological technique uh, which develops deeper selfism in a person. Let me just get that out. Just tell you that's what it is. So remember, identity in Christ is to redirect your thinking in a functional way, biblically. So that's the idea. When we talk about, he says you need to instill identity, is that you got people coming in that it's already been freed, they've been, and they're living like prisoners, and they've already been pardoned, and the jail doors open, and uh, they still live like prisoners. They don't live free. So we get a lot of Christians like that, too, that just don't live free. They live in the bondage of what, they're, what they want. They live in the bondage of what people tell them they are. They live on the, the auspice of all these labels that they are provided. No, you're this, you're that. Once a bipolar, always one. Once, a, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. They live under those labels that identify you. You're not identified by that unless if you're a Christian, you're only identified by the blood of Jesus Christ. You're a child of God. It makes a difference. So, change is also driven by that union that you're a child of God. That we can persevere with others by providing accountability. Here's where he's transitioning to the accountability. Um, he says accountability sh- it shouldn't be a burden. We're not walking around um, trying to catch people in their sin. Cindy sort of helped me with that years ago. Still a little bit of struggle. She's like, um, when people you, they come for help, they're not suspects. <laughs> Spending uh, time in a major case squad as a detective and. And she's always reminding, hey, they're not suspects. Right? And God is in charge of change. and you, You're not being crafty and witty. And so, uh, and I think there was sin in her life at that time when she said that. <laughs> but, but the truth is, it, it's, it's true, isn't it? I mean, we have to be careful that the Spirit of God is providing the change. Now, so I want to just give you the wrong accountability, and then we'll go through this PowerPoint in the next few minutes we have. But... Um, one is that a student of mine was my very first, um, I, had, I had students that were laymen, and I had students that were, you know, in the seminary. So the student, layman students that were training on weekends, they were wanting to go back to the church and do biblical counseling and soul care. And one lady was 70 years old. <laughs> Her name was Joyce. She was amazing, sweet, unbelievable Christian. She is today. She's just amazing. But when she got certified, she was my first certified counselor, and she was, I mean, she was obsessed with reading all the books. She did all the work. But she was, first, 
student that she would she would provide counseling for students on the campus at Calvary University. And so, and she she had this one young lady that really needed help, and she was struggling with depression because she had all these uh, tests and exams that she wasn't passing. And anyways, long story short, she would follow around the campus, and I and this lady would this young girl would run from her, run from her, run from her. And I said, Joyce, what's going on? She says, Every time I try to you know, see if she did her homework. You know, she runs from me, and she won't answer my calls. I go up to the dorm. I try to catch her, and and I said, well, what kind of homework are you talking about? She says, I told her to memorize the third chapter of Galatians. I said, in one week? She goes, yeah. As a, as a seminary, as a student in the college? She goes, yeah. I said, that's the wrong way. You're not trying to capture and correct them, and you're not trying to put that kind of pressure. It doesn't work that way. Another guy would go around, and he was helping uh, two students that were in sexual sin, and he was another one of my seminary students. It was, in, it was an internship at that time, and he would see him out of the gro- at a store somewhere, and he would go up and see him holding hands, and he would go over, and then he would dog him and say, is this leading to sexual sin? And he would just dog him over and over, and I'm like, that's not accountability. That's not what we're talking about. So there is a wrong way of doing this. There's some, here's some practical steps, Okay. Uh, and helps and accountability is what I put on. One is structure, and he, and he says this in the book, chapter 14. Structure. It's one of the structure things that you can help people in helping the process of change is the right relationship with Christ, the gospel. I spend most of my time on that, and it's usually the, the foundation. And then in the self-confrontation manual, it's chapters 1 and 2, um, that they work through the gospel, which is all the way from the creator God all the way to the, the end of the story. And when you get right to that in Revelation 21, but everything in between at the fall and how man has tried to reach God himself through Israel and they failed and how Christ the Redeemer was needed and the, the gospel in a bigger picture. And so I help them understand the right relationship with Christ. See, if you can get somebody to vertically connect, then the horizontal is natural. They, they, so you will, you will love God. You will love your spouse at the level you love God. Honestly, because you want to please him, because he becomes your 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 apple of your eye, the focus of your attention, the, the heart heartbeat of your life. Um, so you want to help them with the motivation of getting their uh, life right. The second little structure would be um, truth or the right understanding of scripture and the change process. So, again, some of the things we've learned in this room, we might have to go over some trying to help people back again, going over that, that. This is a process. This is a process of the church helping you walk through this. Um, we're not in a, we're not struggling with that in the sense that we're trying to do this on our own. We're help people are helping us, and we have to understand this, what the scripture is not a magic trick. Some people think if I can quote these people the sinner's prayer, or the yeah the sinner's prayer, they're going to get saved. If I can just talk them into it, and I was good at that one time. I mean, I was like a gunslinger. I could get people to come out and say the sinner's prayer. I mean, at some point, get people to come to the altar and preaching. That's what my goal was, was because I figured when they said those prayers magically, it was like, boom, it just, they were born again. Um, and it's, it's not true. Understand what's the scripture really, why is it, he says in John 17, you know, uh, sanctify them by your word, your word is truth. So what does that mean? You're going to have to help walk slowly the scripture and the value of the scripture. And it becomes the chemotherapy to the cancer of spiritual sin. The word of God. And then Romans 12, one you know, is having a right commitment to the change process. And this is the will. Now let me give you one more 
sort of inside tip. It only took me 25 years to, to learn this. A person will only change at the level they're willing to change. Did you hear what I just said? A person will only change at the well at the level of their willingness to change. Okay, so you're trying to force teenagers and older people to change. They won't change until they're willing to change. You'll do you'll do much more uh, spiritual work on your knees praying for them and modeling Christianity in front of them than you will trying to convince them against their will. So you have to have a right commitment to the change process. Submit yourself to the to God, your whole body. It's talking about there in Romans 12. So there is a willingness for you to submit yourself that you have to understand. Isaiah 50 verse 7, many other scriptures talk about that, um, that willingness. And so that's, so we build a structure that helps them in the accountability process. You see that? Now we're asking questions and we're making, we're offering hope, but we're not making an ultimatum on that. So that's what we do. We don't sit there and we say, this is what you've got to do. We don't do that. And say, what, would, what should the three things I need to do? No, these are some things you need to think about. There's some things that the Bible says that it's important to your Christian walk. But we're not trying to put the hammer down like uh, we work, like you said, in a, your, your corrections. Your, what would you say it was? My dad, the corrections facility. My dad was talking about prison. All, all well, his dad was a prison guard. Prison and guard. so... He was raised by a prison guard. Can you imagine that? Yeah, wow. <laughs> everybody had to wear the same uniform. To, everybody had to wear the same uniform to lunch and everything. Yeah. Amazing. Sure. Everybody had a high and tight haircut. Sure. Okay, so poor dad. You know, let's pray for him. Uh, guidance. We're in, in the accountability process, we're providing guidance. And there's some things. Right thinking. I promise you that that has to be a normal default mechanism in your life wherever there's sins happening it's happening from the inside out remember christianity when we talk about practical theology is always happening from it's an it's an inside out philosophy of of life it's not outside in the world has an outside in everything's i'm a victim to everything around me my environment millennials i just added that because i felt felt comfortable (laughs) I felt good to say that. I'm just, <laughs> Phil made me do it. I, it wasn't my fault. So it was the right thinking. We have to think biblical. Then you'll, then you'll see the fruit of that. We're not thinking biblical. I'm challenging people to think biblical. It's, you have to understand it's providence. Is there providence involved in this? Is there God's sovereign work involved in this? What does God want you to do? And, and listen, there's one thing for something to happen to you, but the greater responsibility is, is how you respond to it. That's, that's biblical. That's a good soul care sort of change process. Uh, right behaviors, again, follow motives. And then right spiritual disciplines, we set those, help them set that up. Uh, bodily training is good for a little, but spiritual life is best. If you look at that first, there's a summary of that. Assistance, help them with their homework, family issues, on parenting issues like that. Cindy and I had a counselor. Our counselor actually came to our house and helped us counsel six boys. And I can remember him just like a referee. I mean, it was just like he would. And then he was pointing out people like, okay, those look like they're the most trouble because you spanked them the most. But these kids are sneaky. There's a sneak and there's a sneak. And he was helping us to sort of identify, to get away from the squeaky wheel kind of mentality, start training kids individually. And we invited him in our home, which was very embarrassing. But we did it. We had to. 
There was no other choice. No way to survive without that. Learning to love. Love means be sacrificial. Love is not a feeling or emotion. Primarily, it's a, it's a commitment. It's a sacrifice. And so you're teaching people that are in crisis to love biblically and to help resourcing. You can't believe all the things that people are reading that are, again, against what you're actually counseling biblically. So you help them resourcing all kinds of things to help them in life anyway. And then encouragement. We give them encouragement, part of the accountability. Teaching them how to pray, not just telling them to pray. Most of their prayers are self-centered prayers. I want this, give me that, do that, fix my spouse, fix my spouse, fix my spouse rather than fix me. So I tell my, help my counselees to constantly pray that God would change you. Helping them, exhort them, give them biblical hope, show them the hope of the scripture. You always do that before you leave with them. Help develop a relationship, the importance of a relationship, and that means investing in that relationship. Then we're warning them, identify those detrimental behaviors and attitudes in their life. Help them understand man's way versus God's way. Because we're, we're defaulting to a, a worldly system that's influenced us and infiltrated our hearts. And so we always want to do things because we have rights, but the Bible doesn't talk about our rights. It doesn't. Everything we have is grace, from grace. But we don't have rights to be provided for. We don't have rights to be loved. We don't have rights. Those are not rights. They're detrimental to the change process. God gives grace to the humble. So we teach them that. We teach them the systems, understanding that system. Help them understand the dangers of worldly philosophies and how they've inter- interacted with their life. Maybe they're identified with some particular label, and you can help them work against that, that they're really, if they're Christians, they're really, that's what they need to start identifying with, and then work through the struggles of those other labels. Help them understand the dangers of bad theology. Don't ever forget that theology does make a difference. So you can say, well, as long as they love Jesus, fine. No, I'm telling you what, there's some good theology and some really bad theology. And I know Jehovah's Witnesses that would put you to shame when it comes to obedience. I know some Mormons that have more sensitivity in their hearts than I know most of my Christian friends. That doesn't make it right. Bad theology will still produce a wrong relationship with God, ultimately. So we're ambassadors. He called us instruments in the Redeemer's hands. He said... There's three major insights in this book. We'll close. Here it is. Naturally, we are needy and broken people because we're human. So we all need help at some level. You know, you never arrive. The church gives you sort of a, a picture. You kind of feel like coming to church when you're sort of in a religious system. You have to be careful that, you, that you're not trying to arrive. You're always a person in need. Number two, ministry changes your hearts first. We're inside out. We start inside, changes hearts. And Christ's incarnation is our example to minister to others and responsibility to minister to others' lives. Thoughts, comments before we close in prayer. Okay? Thanks. Okay. Father, thank you again for my friends. It's a lot of information, a lot of journey. Thankful for uh, Dr. Paul Tripp as well as his uh, ministry to the saints, to the world. Thank you for using him in this way. Help us to take this seriously. The practical theology would be the, the one-two punch. Good theology proper follows with good practical theology. And then our families, the fallout is that our children and their children will do it better than we're doing it today. We love you and praise you. We ask a blessing upon our pastor and 
our ministry leaders today, that you'll um, use them for your glory, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Thank you.